Psalm 73 is a song of doubt. A song of doubt. In particular, Asaph, who the superscription tells us is our writer, Asaph doubts God's goodness. He questions whether God truly rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Now, Asaph was one of David's chief musicians and a Levite, but here he is struggling with the fact that the wicked of his day were prospering. Circumstances seem to tell a different story than the one he found in Scripture. And hence, he's wrestling with God's goodness. He's doubting, will God truly do what he says he will do? So many of us have experienced the same thing at different times in our Christian walk. We know the theology, we know what the Bible teaches, and yet sometimes the reality of what we deal with in our day-to-day interactions doesn't always seem to line up. The question then becomes, do we doubt God? Do we doubt God's Word? Or is there something altogether different going on? And so as we look through Psalm 73, as we consider this song of doubt, we're going to look at it from two perspectives. We're going to look at verses 1 through 14 and see the soul's conflict. The soul's conflict. And where our emphasis here will be on the trial of faith. But then when we get to verses uh, 15 to 28, we'll see the soul's conquest. The soul's conquest. And we'll see the triumph of faith. We're going to split this psalm into two parts. In this devotional, we'll deal with verses 1 through 14, and then in our next devotional, we'll deal with verses 15 to 28. So let's begin this song of doubt with the soul's conflict. The soul's conflict. And again, our focus is on the trial of faith. Now, these are the first 14 verses, and we're going to divide them up. We're going to begin with verse 1, and we're going to see confidence. Verses 2 to 3, we're going to see confession. Verses 4 to 12, comparison. And then in verse 13, conclusion. And then 14, chastening. As we work our way through the soul's conflict. Now notice Asaph's confidence in verse 1. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now he begins with a very traditional affirmation of faith. Surely God is good to Israel. And the word surely suggests that he has been meditating on this issue of God's goodness. He's been meditating on this issue of the wicked's prosperity. And he is struggling with through this. And, and, but, he, but he's still confident that God is good. And so as he looks for this contradiction between what the godly experience and what the ungodly are experiencing, he's looking for a resolution. And we're going to see in this psalm that truly, by the time we get to the end, he is going to affirm that God is good. Now the word good signifies all of God's graciousness and blessings to his people. Surely God is gracious to his people. Surely God blesses his people. Uh, When we get to verses 23 and 24, we're going to see that uh, uh, the goodness of God includes his power, his wisdom, and his purpose. Now, the other aspect, or the other part of verse 1 that we need to see here for a moment, to those who are pure in heart. Now, that's the parallel statement. Surely God is good. Now, take the rest out, to those who are pure in heart. Now, in Psalm 24, 4, the pure in heart describe the person who did not deal dishonestly who had not worshipped idols. 
whose heart was open, who had a single-hearted, single-minded, single-eyed devotion towards Yahweh. We saw this in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 8. The pure in heart will see God. And so, yes, God is good, particularly to who? To those who are pure in heart. Now, notice in verse 2 to 3, his confession. It's Asaph's confession. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, his confidence in verse 1 becomes a negative confession in verse 2 to 3. He says, I've almost stumbled. I've almost slipped in my walk with God. And here's where the issue begins to come to the surface. Because his circumstances are contradicting his theology. He says, I'm envious of the boastful. You know, I'm looking here and the wicked are prosperous. They're enjoying prosperity. And so his heart is bad, he says. My heart is bad because I'm envious. The events I'm seeing contradict what I believe. The boastful, the wicked, they're prospering. These criminals who violate God's law, and yet they're experiencing prosperity or well-being. Literally, the word prosperity here means health or wholeness. Now, it's this question that haunts him. Why do the wicked prosper? Now, what are we to think? Because do we not experience the same? Do we not see the saints suffering and the sinners being successful? How can we understand, how can we deal with the fact that God is a good God when we look at the violent, oppressive people that, that are running the world? How can people, how can believers, how can you and I believe that God is good to those who are pure in heart when the pure in heart are often left living under the oppression of the wicked who are living in prosperity? So we can certainly identify and understand where Asaph is coming from. Now in verses 4 through 12, he gives us a comparison. Now the comparison is between the experience of the righteous and the experience of the ungodly. For there are no pains in their death, verse 4. Their body is fat. They are not in troubles as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Their garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. Their imaginations of their hearts run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, How does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Now, he wants to emphasize his complaint, and so to prove his complaint is true, he begins this comparison uh, of the wicked's prosperity and the righteous hardship. First, he says that the wicked die peacefully. They don't have any pangs or trauma in their death. Second, he says their body is fat. Now, fat here, uh, the, the Hebrew word is used in Genesis 45 verse 18 to describe a sign of blessing. Third, they do not know trouble. They don't know labor. They don't know plague, in verse 5. They have, in other words, they avoid toil. Uh, they find a way of getting out of hard work. They don't seem to get sick. They're not experiencing any illness. And as a result, they, they wear pride like a necklace, and their garments are 
garments of violence in verse 6. In other words, they're exalting themselves, they're living without a restraint, their eyes bulge with fatness or abundance, their hearts are overflowing, and, you know, they have everything. They're lacking nothing. And in, in the Hebrew mind, in Asaph's mind, based on Genesis 17, 6 to 8, the very things that, the very blessings, the fatness, if you will, that the wicked are experiencing, the righteous should be experiencing. And so he, he is really struggled, in a struggle here to understand, God, how can you be good? How can you be gracious? How can you be just? How can you say this when this is our real reality? He continues in verse 8. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They, 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 they have pride and speak against God. They set their mouths against the heavens in verse 9. Uh, they, uh, they spew lies and propaganda. As we come down to verses 10 to 12, uh, he begins to describe the, their arrogance and the arrogance of their followers. In uh, verse 10, uh, he talks about his people returning and draining or drinking the waters of abundance. In other words, you know, not only these wicked leaders are prosperous, but those who follow them are also prosperous. And he, as he says in verse 9, I cannot understand how the unbelief of the wicked is resulting in blessing. These wicked people even in, you know, question, how does God know? Where is knowledge in the Most High? In other words, they're saying, listen, if your God is so holy and so powerful and sees the hearts and actions of men, then how are we able to live as we do and get away with it? The conclusion is either God is not God or there's no justice. And if there's no justice, well, everything's just relative. There is no right or wrong. doesn't matter what you do. And because the ungodly are at ease, because they're increasing in riches, they think, well, God has abandoned the pure in heart. See, experience says God's good to the wicked. And if experience is to be trusted, then what kind of good God is that? Now, that brings us to a question. Can we trust our experiences? Or is it possible that our experiences create blind spots for us? Is it possible that what we're experiencing is causing us to be unable to see things as they truly are? The reality is, yes, our experiences blind us to be able to look at things from a proper perspective. And that's why we have to be so careful on making judgment calls or, you know, giving our opinion. Well, I think it's this and I think it's that. Well, why? well, in my experience. Okay, well, that's great. But here we see a case of experience is contradicting what God says. Now, if we honestly believe that God is just and holy and he is a good God and does good to his people and we, believe, we take his word at face value, then we have to then say, well, obviously then I can't trust in my experience. This is the battle. This is the area that Asaph himself is struggling with, and so many of us have struggled as well at different times in our life. Look at his conclusion in verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. You know, he's looking at what the wicked are, are, are getting away with, how they're being blessed and so forth, and his basic thing is, why be righteous? Why be pure in heart? Why be innocent? I might as well go out and live like them. Because they're prospering. Why should I repent of my sin? They're not. You know, so what should I do? 
And that's his conclusion. It's all vanity. It's for nothing. But notice verse 14, the chastening. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Now that all day long means that he's been stricken continually. Now, it appears that he's experiencing some kind of illness or chronic affliction. He's chastened every morning. Now, we have to determine, does the word chasten mean rebuke or correction? Is it a little bit of both? Uh, you know, it's, it's not a case of, uh, you know, he's learning something or he's being educated, but rather that he's being chastened, he's being rebuked, which I think fits better with the fact that I've been stricken or I've been plagued all day long. I'm continually plagued. I'm continually being chastened by God. So here's the wicked prospering. And in spite of their sin, they're prospering. And in spite of his righteousness, he's being chastened. He's being rebuked. Now, God is good, and yet he's suffering punishment. He has repented and sought cleansing, but seemingly to no avail. Asaph's in a crisis. His theology isn't functional. Perhaps that's where you have found yourself as well. We're going to pause here, and we'll continue next time in Psalm 72, and we'll consider, excuse me, Psalm 73, and we will continue with the soul's conquest. And we'll see how Asaph moves from the trial of faith to the triumph of faith. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, as we give you the praise for who you are, for what you've done, we, we declare that indeed you truly are a good God. And Father, yet we confess that our theology and our circumstances don't often align. There are times, Father, when we look at life through the lens of our experience, and as that plays out, uh, it runs counter to our theology or what we believe. And so, Father, I ask and pray that, uh, Lord, you would cause us to submit to you despite our circumstances. That, Father, we would cast ourselves. That's what Asaph's doing here, Lord. He, he's teaching us how to submit even though we don't understand. Even though our theology is seeming to fail us, Father. Father, we ask that you would forgive us in, for these times when we doubt. Forgive us, Lord, when we struggle. Uh, and yet, Father, we thank you because we know that you do forgive us. You do condescend to our low estate. Uh, you do take pity upon us. Uh, in our struggles, and we praise you for that. Lord, can keep us from ourselves. Keep us from our own worst enemy, ourself. And uh, Father, as well, keep us from the evil one. Keep us from the wicked. Keep us, Father, from looking at them and looking at their prosperity and assuming, you know, they've got it good and we've got it so bad. Get, help us to see things through your lens and not the lens of experience, not the lens of wicked. And so, Father, we thank you that we can come boldly before your throne of grace through the sacrificial death of your Son. We give you all the praise and all the glory. Amen.